you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We'll be at Acts for this week, and then next week, Lord willing, we will be starting our Advent series. Looking forward to that, and probably get to see a good bit of Rusty over the next month teaching because uh, I tend to have all of our, Sarah tends to have all of our babies in November and December, so Lord willing we'll have a baby sometime this next month. We're going to be in verses 1 through 25, I want to read these verses for us this morning, and then I'm not going to read much of this passage again as we proceed this morning. So, uh, But keep your Bibles open, and you'll see as I'm referencing back to various portions of this passage. <clears throat> let's pray, or let's read, and then we'll pray. Starting in verse 1. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, that is, execution. <clears throat> and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, The intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Fathers, we see your gospel going forward this morning as we see the mission of God going forward this morning. Father, may we have hearts and eyes, may we have minds to understand, to comprehend what exactly is happening in this passage. Father, for for you are showing us something in these words, as you always do. You're teaching us something in these words, as you always do. You're revealing something of yourself and of your plan, like you always do. Father, there's something unique about what happens when your people are scattered. So, Father, I pray that as we study your words this morning, that 
we would have hearts that are changed, uh, certainly for our good, but most importantly for your glory, Father. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so here in the book of Acts, we've been watching the early days of the Christian church unfold. We are watching and marveling, I, I believe, and hopefully in your own heart this is true, at the wonderful work of God. Watching these events take place, trying to make note, if you will, of what God is doing and what the people's response to God's doings is or are, what they look like. And much of this shows us how we are to live in response to God as well. It helps us understand how is God interacting with the church at such an infantile state. Because if you think about like the beginnings, when you're trying to set precedent, and you're trying to get something off the ground, like the, the actions and the doings are, are very intentional. Of course, God's are always intentional, but certainly here in this early beginnings of the church, Watching what's happening and how they're responding and what's taking place is so informative for us. However, I would say this. We have to be careful because there's not always, like a, what one person said, a, a one-to-one ratio in how we interpret and apply particularly something like the book of Acts. It is a narrative. So meaning much of, of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. I don't know if you understand the difference between that, but you know, it's describing what's happening versus prescribing what we should do. But we have to be careful because we can also just label something as description so that we don't have to follow or mimic what's being said. Uh, but at the same time, we can over-prescribe the text, meaning we can take what they're doing and say, okay, well, they did this, so we must do this. Um, so we would be careful that we don't over like principalize. If, I don't know if that's a word or not, but over principalize the the text. Um, but also be careful that we don't um, push the text again to say more than what it's saying. So we have to be careful. There's not not always a one to one ratio. We're going to get into that particularly when we start talking about the spirit not falling and what that looks like. But what we have to understand is that God did specific acts here. And we have to be careful and certain and intentional about understanding the principles that are being taught. Principles for us to learn, principles for us to apply, for us to live by. So as we move forward in Acts, and obviously as we move forward as a church, we are called to be about specific tasks. Let me say this, we are not given the privilege as a church to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We are given specific tasks to be about as a church. Listen, the the vision and the mission of the church is one that is large, is an aspect of the church that's largely not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. It's not up for input. Much of that is determined very clearly from the Scriptures, if we know the Scriptures. It's not something that your elders just get to decide. It's not something we get to vote on. The same is true in our personal lives. Even though we like to make it a matter of democratic uh, process, where the only one who gets to vote on what my mission and such looks like is myself, and anytime anyone votes against how we might spend our mission in our lives, uh, we tend to not like that. But the same is true in our personal lives, particularly as our personal lives make up our church community life. We're not free to be about whatever we just simply want to be about. God has given us as a church and as individual peoples who make up the church a mission. And that mission is to look a certain way. Now, we have to be careful because in our culture, but it's true in this culture as well, that, <clears throat> that God's framework, if you will, God's design for the mission had kind of been pushed aside, and what was embraced was man's vision of mission and, and what Christianity and religiosity and such was to look like. Same is true in our day, where we, where we take central truths and principles of God's Word, and we kind of push them to the side in order to embrace what we most like, and we make that the central 
driving force of our mission. So we have to be careful because what, what I'm saying here is we're going to gather from this passage and from all of the book of Acts for that matter central like principles and driving forces for what mission in the church is to look like. And we'll be careful that we understand that that's going to look different ways in different people's lives. But it's still going to fit underneath a greater umbrella of principles and guidelines, framework, if you will. You see, the mission of my life and your life is to look a certain way. We don't get to just do what we want to do and how we want to do it. The mission of our families is to look a certain way. This past week, my wife and I, I, I got a chance to have a conversation with someone, and hopefully, Lord willing, my, my wife and I have been talking about this past week how we might engage in this situation with our family and be on mission in this relationship and what this looks like for us. You see, our, our family, we don't just get to be about whatever we want to be about. The mission, no matter what stage of life you are in, whether that's living at home as a teenager, living as a young adult, whether you have kids or whether you're retired, the mission, no matter what stage of life, must look a certain way. Again, we talk all the time as a church about building kingdom, building, whether we're building God's kingdom or we're building our kingdom. Today, we're going to talk a, a good bit specifically about what it looks like to actually build this kingdom and build this kingdom as a gathered people of Christ, particularly. Here, what, what we see here in Acts chapter 8 is for the first time, the church is going out on mission. And so what does that look like? What does it look like when the church is scattered for the first time. I got four kind of basic points for you. The first one is this. The mission is moved by the lay people. The mission is moved by the lay people. I want to make sure I give credit. Uh, Keller's sermon on this same passage was very influential and um, some of his main points I've paraphrased for us. It's just really helpful in this passage. The mission is moved by the lay people. Let's talk about this. Acts 1.8, if you remember back, you know, what, 13 weeks ago now. Acts 1.8, Jesus says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here's what happens. Persecution comes, right? This is, it's not just opposition. Now we're in the level of persecution. Stephen has died. He's been murdered. Persecution comes and the saints scatter. Now if you're following the narrative thus far, until this point, all the Christians and all the conversions and such that have taken place have all happened in Jerusalem. All the preaching of the word, all of the proclamation of the gospels happened in Jerusalem. They had not started going yet. They had not started moving beyond Jerusalem yet. So what happens is God uses the murder and persecution of Stephen to move the church forward and outward. Don't miss this. And here's what happens. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's important. What, what do you mean by preaching the word? In 8.4 it says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The word for preach here does not mean formal preaching like you're used to. It doesn't mean, you know, they each gathered for them a bullhorn or a speaker system and set up chairs and sat in front of people and talked. Uh, the idea here, the, the word for preaching, the word is the idea of to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel, to share the good word of God's salvation through Jesus. They were sharing the good news of Christ. So when it says that they went about preaching the word, they were sharing the good news of the gospel. One person said this, they were gossiping the gospel. 
they were gossiping the gospel. What they were doing is they were talking about the gospel everywhere they went. Did you hear that, church? They were sharing the gospel everywhere they went. Now again, this is something where we can go like, okay, is the principle, what's the principle here? Does this mean every conversation that I need to have, that I have has to include a presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's, I think that's pushing the text too far. But, I think the principle here is that the gospel was a primary part of their conversations. It was a big deal to them. It was big enough of a deal to them to talk about it everywhere they went. They went about preaching the word. They had gospel, the presentation of the gospel regularly on their tongues. I would say this, they were so enthralled with the beauty of Christ and the marvelous work of redemption that they couldn't stop talking about it specifically. The good news of Christ, the redeeming work on the cross, the resurrection of the Son. They weren't just talking about how beautiful the sky was and and that God made it. I mean, I think we need to have that conversation too. But they were talking about Christ and His cross work. It was in the normal, everyday conversation that they talked about the gospel. So again, as we're thinking about, okay, how do we be on mission? How were they on mission? They were talking about the gospel in everyday conversations. And how often, right, if if I could be specific to us, how often do we have conversations with people over and 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 over again and the gospel never comes up? It's amazing that some of our conversations with our spouses look this way. We talk to them all the time, all the time, all the time, and the gospel never comes up. Particularly with your spouse and with your friends and such like the, your, your children, the gospel should be a part of your regular conversation. But, but that's not just what was going on here. What was happening is the gospel was a part of their conversation with people that they didn't know. Right? Because what happened to them? This wasn't them going to the marketplace that they've been visiting for the past 25 years of their life to have gospel conversations with that person. That had happened, but what's happening now? They're scattered. What's that mean? They're about in other places. Many of them have lost their homes. They're in places with people that they don't know. And it says that they're going about proclaiming the word. I want you to see they were gossiping the gospel what I also want you to see, uh, going into like the verse 15, is that the mission is moved by the lay people, but unified under the leadership. Moved by the lay people, but unified under the leadership. <clears throat> Notice this, that it was those who were scattered that were evangelizing. Those who were scattered were moving the mission forward, moving the mission outward. Who were those who were scattered? It's interesting because back at the beginning, right, it says that they were scattered except the, who? The apostles. So who was scattered? The lay people, not the clergy. The lay people were scattered, and they were the ones doing the evangelizing. It wasn't the clergy, it wasn't the elders, it was the Normal, everyday Christians. Nick Keller said this, You realize that people tend to trust the authenticity of a layperson before the polished speech of a preacher. I think what we see much in America uh, is a bunch of polished speeches and then not much conversation beyond that. And the polished speeches, if you will, have their place and they're valuable and they're vital and they, they need to be here. But in order for the mission to move forward, the lay people have to evangelize. 
even, even I, as I sit down, people, lost people, such, and as soon as they know I'm a preacher or a pastor, like, there's just, the dynamic just changes. Like, like honestly, I hate it. Now, it's easier to talk about spiritual things, honestly. I, I, I do think there's some advantage there, because as soon as they know I'm a preacher, then they're like, then they like all of a sudden want to talk about spiritual things, but then they kind of ha- already have it figured out. So, I don't know what the point of that is, but but it's like, it's just the dynamic. It's like, oh, I expected you to say that. Oh, yes, you would say that. Or, oh, you're just trying to proselytize me. You're just trying to convert me. You're just trying to so on and so forth. And, which is understandable. I mean, I just hate that. But that's a reality. But for you guys, for, for most of you, like, you have a natural advantage there that that God is kind to provide. And that's what we see here. The, the mission is moving forward by the lay people. But also notice this. The apostles came. The apostles came. So what's it say there? It says that the Spirit had not yet come upon them. All right. So I get it. This is a, uh, when I first read that, I'm like, oh, man, i got to preach on that this week. Uh, i got to study this. i got to figure out what the heck is going on. The Spirit hadn't come upon them. I, I don't believe this is support for a later manifestation of the Spirit, as some denominations like to argue for. I don't think this is them saying that, you know, you get saved, and then later there's like a second salvation, if you will, where you receive the Spirit, and that's usually uh, uh, like exemplified or fruited in speaking in tongues. I don't, I don't think that's what this passage is demonstrating for us. Here's what I think is happening in this passage. Is that this is the first time, understand, the first time the gospel had gone to the Gentiles. The first time we see Gentile conversions taking place. See, the gospel had been in Jerusalem, had it been in the synagogues, right? All these examples are, are Jews that are coming to faith in Christ. This is the first time the gospel had went to the Gentiles. And the responsibility, understand, the responsibility of the apostles was to make sure that, if, that this movement of God that had now went beyond Jerusalem and had went to the Gentiles, that this movement of God was indeed genuine, that it was sincere. They went to validate the supposed work of the gospel. They were to oversee the, the sincerity of it, the, the genuine. The, the, whether it was genuine or not. This is why we have the case study of Simon here in just a few moments. And what's found out about Simon? That it wasn't genuine. That his conversion was insincere. So they went to validate what was happening or to invalidate what was happening, to say this is not genuine. But notice this. The movement, the mission, goes forward by the lay people. And what's happening is that the apostles, this is, this is like, it's so like dynamic. That was, that was the word I heard you use describe this week. Dynamic, what's happening. Because what you have is the elders, the apostles, are not dictating every move of every person, telling them where to go or who to talk to or, or what service should look like and how, who they're going to share the gospel with. They're not dictating every move. That's very dynamic. It's very organic, if you will. People are going. The gospel is going. Conversations are being had. People are being served. People are even being healed. Instead, what's happening is the elders are guiding and directing, making sure what's happening is making sure that the work is pure. Making sure that it's, this is valid. And, and we'll, we'll notice later on that, that the role of elders, particularly as, as Acts moves forward, but then as we see in the epistles, that their job is to unify the body of Christ and uh, to help bring about unity and to keep us on the same path and so on and so forth. But there's this sense in which the, the, as the mission moves forward that, that uh, it's very, again, very dynamic and organic. But the elders still, the apostles still have this kind of oversight. They're just making sure they're staying, staying in the, the lane, if you will, Right? That it's that staying pure, 
and that staying true. It's really important. That's good for both as you think about as a lay person moving forward and for us elders to think how do we, what's our role in this as well. So you have both people moving the gospel forward while the apostles are watching over it. The last thing I want you to see underneath this idea of the mission is moved forward by the lay people is this. God's sovereign movement of your life is for proclamation, not just sanctification. God's sovereign movement of your life is for proclamation, not just sanctification. What do I mean by that? What we talk a lot about as a church that when God changes the circumstances of our lives, whether that's putting us in a new job or removing certain relationships and bringing about new relationships or He moves our houses from one place to another, that these things are, these circumstances are meant to help grow us, right? To help us grow dependent on God and to trust Him. Well, that's true. But that's not all there is to that. God sovereignly moves us from one place to the next, from one relationship to the next, not just for us to be sanctified, but for us to proclaim the gospel. This is what's happening in this text. He moves these people around by the use of persecution. And it's not just so that they would learn to trust God. It is that. It's not just that. It's also for the purpose of spreading the kingdom, for proclaiming the gospel. So the next time a a job situation hits, or the next time you find yourself in one place when you were hoping to be in a different place, remember that God's put you there not just to help you love and grow and depend on Him more, but He's put you there to proclaim the gospel. To share the good news of Jesus. Again, He moves people around so that others might know Christ. Even disheartening circumstances. God is sanctifying you, but He is also positioning you for great proclamation. So I just want you to see, any, even in a secular world, people understand that leaders don't move mission forward. That lay people move mission forward. We see this. I wonder where they got it from. We see this in Acts. Second thing I want you to see is that mission utilizes the natural benefits of the city. Mission utilizes the natural benefits of the city. We have a little bit of fun here. The rest of Acts will be virtually all city-focused. Example, in Acts 16, Paul's vision, he gets a vision and he goes to Macedonia. He goes to the biggest city. Again, we can be, we gotta be careful here. We don't take this as prescriptive. It's descriptive, but there's, I think it's descriptive, but there's certainly some value in us understanding how is the mission moving forward and what role does the city play in the mission of God. So just some pragmatics. Understanding like how, at least in our day, and I, but I, I think this is probably true of all time, but particularly in this day and in our day, some pragmatics. First of all, ideas start in the city and move out to the rest of the region. I mean, this is just studies after studies. You, you can watch this happen. Ideas are kind of incubated and started in the core of a city, and then it moves out and infects or heals the rest of the region. And Paul knew, I think Paul understood this, that if he could reach the biggest city, like Macedonia, that he would reach the region. And Keller said this, if you reach a town, you just reach the town, but if you reach the city, you'll reach the towns. And I think there's some practical principles there for us to understand as a church. So why does Paul go to Antioch? It was a culturally diverse city. 
he knew that if he reached these different cultures in the city of Antioch, that they would go back and they would reach their towns, their, their own specific cultures. So let me talk a little bit about where I think we struggle with something like this practically for us. Many of us are suburbanites. And if we're not suburbanites, we functionally are suburbanites. And we look often upon the city with angst. It's unsafe. That's where the drugs are. It's too much crime. Those darn one-way streets. You ever turn the wrong way down a one-way street? I have. I got to face homeless people. That makes me feel guilty. Prostitution. And so, so what do we do? Like, what do we, what do we do as typical suburbanites? We try to isolate ourselves from these things. We try to withdraw from these things. We try to put up the appropriate fences for these things. Let me give you a, a practical example here in Beaver Creek. Back in 2011, Beaver Creek fought hard against having the RTA bus stops in the city of Beaver Creek. I, now listen, there's, there's fiscal reasons and so on and so forth for why they didn't want to do this, but the reality is they fought hard against it. I, I read this quote. The council who was making this decision reconsidered its position on the bus stops after the Federal Highway Administration determined the city's previous rejection of the stops in 2011 violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The city risked losing more than $10 million in federal highway funding, I-675, if the council decision was not reversed. So, I mean, what's going on here? Isolation. We don't want that here. We don't want those people here. We don't want to have to face that. We don't want to deal with the potential problems that might come along with that. We, we want to isolate ourselves from it. So even here, did, did the, I mean, honestly, did, I mean, I'm making an assumption here. Maybe I shouldn't, but did the city of Beaver Creek do this for moral reasons of wanting to help? Wanting to be a part of these people's lives? No, they did it for 10 million other reasons. Listen, we, we want to be around people who are most like us. And this is true whether you live in the city or the burbs. We want to be around people who are most like us. We want to be around people who keep their yards a certain way or only use certain curse words or speak our language or people who like the same food or dress a certain way or like a similar types of music or certain volumes of certain types of music and, or have certain looking cars or drive certain ways and I'm not dismissing the fact that there's some things that are better for society and some things that are worse. I'm not dismissing those things. I'm not saying there's not a reality that some things are better for reselling your house and some things are not. That, that, that's certainly the case. But the reality is, is what are we trying to do as people? Are we trying to isolate ourselves from people that God cares about? And that's the danger that we fall into. That's the, that's the temptation Here's what we miss. God loves the city just as much as he loves the burbs. And God's heart is for the city just as much as he loves the burbs. Clearly, in the early church, they understood that one of the best ways to reach the most people was to reach the city. And that it would spread from there. Do, 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 does this mean that God just wants us to start churches and just to do ministry inside the city? I don't believe that that's what's happening here. But I think what we see here is a strategic move in God's mission to be in the place and to reach the place that had the most influence on the region. And what we see them doing, and this is, I think, the principle particularly for us, is that we are careful that we do not forsake what God has clearly given opportunity for them to do that he may give opportunity for us as well. And that we don't forsake that opportunity for something sinful. Like isolating ourselves from the things that make us uncomfortable. 
Here's what we got to note at this point as it continues to the book of Acts is that the mission spread most quickly among the lower class and the oppressed. That's where the gospel spread most quickly. Does that mean that God doesn't care about the wealthy? No. Does that mean that God doesn't care for the oppressors? No. Right? Certainly, Saul is an oppressor, and God redeems him. But God cares about the lowly, and God cares about the oppressor. This is a theme all throughout the Gospels. You see Jesus is ministering to the lowly, to the oppressed. And where does the highest population of these people usually live? In the city. Now, it doesn't exclusively live in the city. But it's true even here. There is a higher population of this in the city. So here's a question. When we, or here's the deal. When we isolate ourselves from the city, we are probably isolating ourselves from those whom God cares so much for. Keller said this, today people are moving in the city faster than the church is. Here's the question, what does this look like for us? What does it look like for us? Well, I think at the, very, at the very beginning, we need to be engaging the people that God has put us in contact with, right? I mean, that, we need to start there. So where our houses are at, engage the people around your house. Because if you can't do that, then you're not, like... Engage. Start there. But then we also need to be thinking as a church, how can we engage the city? How can we reach, if this is a very strategic and practical thing, how, how can we do this? And if this is what's happening in the early mission of the church, how can we do this? And that's part of why I'm excited about our house gatherings and what's going on and the changes that we've made there and making over this next year is each house gathering can is is can each house gathering's mission can look a little bit different. Reaching a different part of the city, doing a different ministry in the city, and others doing them in the burbs, and and we're not just in one place, but we can be in multiple places. So I just want that that to begin that train of thought: is what does this look like for us? What does it look like for you? What's it look like for your family? But what I most important want us to do is to start, most importantly want us to do is that we start with making sure our hearts are not simply trying to remove ourselves from the people that God cares about as well. To simply embrace comfort and isolationism. That's what we've got to be careful I mean, listen, I am just as guilty of this myself. Number three, the mission must be holistic. The mission is moved by the lay people. The mission utilizes, understands natural benefits, particularly that of the city. And the mission must be holistic. Holistic. They have four marks of this. What I mean by holistic. The first mark is this the word. The word. All right, so they go about with this message, particularly that of Philip. But what I want you to notice is there's intentional content in this message. He was speaking the gospel. 8 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Proclaimed to them the Christ. What, what I want you to notice is that the content of the message was important. It was crucial that the words mattered. He wasn't proclaiming to them just good news. He wasn't proclaiming to them just uh, religiosity. He wasn't proclaiming to them, just come to my church. He wasn't proclaiming to them, of this is how you should live your life. He was proclaiming to them the Christ. The good news about Christ. He was particular in the message. Just an observation. We live in a culture where we, uh, words are abused. Messages are confused. 
We just want to say what's on our mind and not have to deal with how it's understood. Oftentimes lacking clarity and consistency, particularly when it comes to the Scriptures. Listen, I'm not trying to scare you away from talking. I'm trying to help you see the importance of the clarity in the message. That we go proclaiming the Christ and we have to understand the Christ. Now, obviously, we're going to understand that to different levels, right? And that's okay. But be understanding in increasing measure the Christ so we can proclaim this message. Now, I think this word, if you will, manifests itself in three ways. So this is one of, these are the next three marks, but it's, they're really kind of manifestations of the word, okay? The second one, then, is deed. Deed. The mission must be holistic. So it's word. Second, it's deed. Here's what's happening. Again, I don't have time to go back and reread this, but both the physical and the spiritual was being healed. Don't miss that. You have paralytics and cripples being healed of their physical brokenness. At the same time, you have evil spirits being cast out. Here's the principle. Our words must be coupled with deeds. Our words must be coupled with deeds. Kind of similar to what James says. A faith without works is dead. Right? So we can speak words, but if there's not deeds that are coupled with the words, then it's dead. And realize, again, the theme through Christ's ministry, and we see this carried out in the book of Acts, is that much of this work is centered around caring for the down and out, the poor, the struggling, the oppressed. But what I want you to see is that the church must care about both. It's not an either or. It's not just, I get to go stand on a street corner and use my bullhorn, as many supposed Christians do. But it's, I proclaim the gospel as I to care for the spiritual needs as I also care for the physical needs, right? Because God cares about both. Many times, in a practical sense, the physical need, the physical restoration, the physical healing is in many ways an opportunity to share what is needed to be said for spiritual healing and spiritual help. What you see is both Again, when we think about the poor, when we think about the oppressed, it's both. They likely need spiritual healing, physical healing, both. But I want us to be careful that we don't be too presumptuous here. Just because someone is poor in physicality doesn't mean that they are poor spiritually. Also, just because someone lives in a $10,000 house doesn't mean that they need to live in a $100,000 house. So we be careful that what we envision for people and what healing looks like that we're very, very careful. We can talk more about that as house gatherings and church as we move forward, but understand that what I want you to see is that God was caring here as the mission moved forward about both the physical and the spiritual. Not just one or the other. It was both. Now notice this. He was performing miracles. Right? People are being healed, like right in front of their eyes. Cripples, able to walk. Again, is this a one-to-one? Do we need to be able to do that today? Does God still do that today? I, I think God does this today. But is this a, this, in order for our movement to be legitimized, or in order for us to be about God's mission, that we have to be able to do this? No, I don't think that that's, what this text is teaching us. I think that it's happening here in such large amount because, again, it's the first time the gospel is going to the Gentiles. It's just sort of a, a validation of God's movement in the mission of God that as it goes to the Gentiles, yes, indeed, this is true. And here's a witness to it. You see, when the city, here's what you need to notice, when the city saw the deeds, they believed the words 
And when the people around us, when the city around us sees us helping the physically hurting and seeing people transformed spiritually, then and only then will the people around us believe us. You have word and deed. Number three, community. The mission of God, again, is word, deed, community. Thinking about the holistic aspect here. Verse 12 of of 8 says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So if you did renovate us this week, I said, what is baptism? It was one of my 25 questions. Here's what you need to notice. Nobody in the Bible simply believes and then goes about as Christians. Nobody. They believe and then they're baptized. Now I don't mean this, I don't think this is a prescription that you proclaim Christ and then you're baptized the next second. I don't think that's doing that. But there is certainly this correlation, this, this necessary step of I'm saved, now I'm baptized. Why? What is baptism? Listen, everyone in our culture, well, everyone, I'm, I'm being too generalizing here, but many in our culture want this simple scenario here. Give me Jesus so I can go to heaven. Give me a church so I can be happy till I get there. Oh, what is it? It's just nothing more than spiritualized individualism. It's nothing more than selfishness cloaked in spirituality. It's in our church too. Listen, someone said this. Baptism is not private. It's public. Baptism is not individual. It's communal. Here's what baptism says. So when you ask, what is baptism? Well, it's it's a symbol of my burial and and death and resurrection with Jesus. Yes, absolutely, it's that. But what is it also? It is saying, I'm identified with these people. Identify with him, and identify with these people particularly. What's that? When you say, I identify with these people, what are you saying? I'm committed to these people. I'm a part of this body of believers. It means I want to be a part of this community. You see, when you get salvation, you don't just get Jesus, you get a community too. This is one of the things that we miss so much in churches today. Baptism is not just a public profession of my faith in Christ. It's a public profession of my commitment to the body of Christ as well. I'm identifying with these people. I mean, think about what was going on here in the early church, right? They, they believed and then they were baptized. What's, that, what's, what's happening? They're, they're saying, you can take my life. But I'm committed to these people, to this mission, to this good news. And then what do you, what, what do you get in return? You get a community, too. Listen, this is in part why we practice covenant church membership, why we renew our covenant when we welcome new members. Listen, we don't get to see each one of you baptized, but we can rehearse your covenant baptism. We can rehearse the meaning of baptism as we rehearse our covenant together. That I'm committed to these people and committed to this church. You see, community is a part. And the world, right? Baptism, if this is a public profession saying to these people and to the world out there that I'm a part of this community as a believer, I get to be a part of this community and I'm committed to this community. This says something to the world. Number four. In order for the message to be, in order for the mission to be holistic, it also must be racial unifying. The 
popular tag phrase today is racial reconciliation. That shows racial unifying. You say, okay, Matt, where's that at in the text? The whole text is about it. The whole story here is about racial reconciliation. Listen, the Samaritans and the Jews, two different races of people, hated each other. Hated each other. Listen, Jews were taught growing up, particularly the men, that to even come in contact with one of these Samaritans would make them ceremonially unclean. They were taught that way. Listen, it's easy. I mean, there's so much I could say here. I just want to keep it very narrowed and focused. It's easy for us to categorize people groups as being without hope in the gospel. It's easy for us to categorize people groups in such a way that somehow diminishes our responsibility to relate to them and to share the gospel with them, whether that's for salvific reasons or sharing the gospel with them for uniting reasons. Well, they're a particular race. That's just what they do. We would never say that God cannot save them. But when we throw our hands up in the air and walk away, like, well, that's just what they do, or that's just the way it is. It's the same thing. Listen, the challenge for us is that in any situation in which you notice a group being oppressed or considered outcast or marginalized, they don't need to be just isolated from us or isolated from culture. What they need is the hope of the gospel, the good news of Christ. Again, maybe they have the gospel in a salvific sense. Maybe they understand the gospel and, and are following Christ and loving Him. So maybe what we need to do is reach out in a living out the gospel sense, meaning caring for them in ways that display the gospel. Whether that's in the public square or lifting them up out of oppression if God would allow those with the power to do so. Here's what happens. The gospel tears down walls of hostility, right? We spent 82 weeks working through Ephesians. And one of the biggest themes in Ephesians is that there's, there's no longer this dividing wall of hostility. So here, this Jews and these Samaritans, God is tearing down this wall right here. You understand that if this wall here had not been torn down, we would be going to hell. Unless you're in here and of Jewish descent, and I'm not aware of it, you would be going to hell had the dividing wall of hostility not been torn down. We think about this when we think about relating to people around us, people that are not like us. We think about the city. Keller said this, when the word is fleshed out in deed and community and you see people loving each other who would otherwise not, that's when people pay attention. That's when people pay attention. What is going on in that place? Listen, don't forget, we talked about this at our Thanksgiving dinner, that Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector would have hated each other but now sit unified, caring for each other because the gospel brings about unity. So when we think about mission, it's got to be holistic. It's got to be word. It's got to be a proclamation of a specific message. 
It's got to be deed. Right? Where we're caring for the physical side of brokenness. It's got to involve community. Where I'm committed to these people, to this local body of Christ. And I want to bring people into that local body. I'm committed to these people. And in all of that, we must have a care for unifying people. No matter what race, no matter what their past is, no matter what their cultural expressions look like that are good, bad, or indifferent. When this happens, the world pays attention. And that's what's happening here. Right? You saw that. Uh, it started with Jews, so it had similar religious expression from very different cultures, right? Coming together. And they're unifying. Now you see them moving out and now them and the Samaritans are starting to come together underneath the gospel of Jesus Christ. What picture does that show? Again, talked about this at our Thanksgiving dinner. We who are very unlike God because of our sin, God has met us and has brought us into unity with Him and the Spirit and the Son by His power through the work of the gospel to transform our lives into the image of His Son. Here's a question. How is all this happening? How is this taking place? Number four, the mission must be driven by the gospel. That's the only way for this to happen. I, I mean, I, I know that's cliche for us. But it's got to be said, and I've, we've got to talk about it right here. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 18 through 20. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone of whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you, listen right here, you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So here's what's happening, right? The, the apostles are present to make sure that everyone who believed was a genuine believer. That this movement of God was true. And the case study given to us is Simon. He said he believed. He even was baptized. He was a part of the church. I mean, it's a side note for us to recognize here. I'm going to get to the side note in just a second. It says, but then... He thought he could buy God's power with money. Peter says, you're still captive to sin. So I want you just to notice that people can be a part even of this church and still not be believers. That's what's happening here with Simon. Is the text super clear that Simon is indeed being proclaimed an unbeliever? It's not Super clear. I think that's the implication of what, of what Peter is saying. That you're still captive to this sin. And particularly, here's the key, particularly to captive to the sin of thinking that you can somehow merit God's blessing. I mean, that's very fundamental to salvation. If we think we can earn it, then we don't have it. The struggle for many of us, I think, is similar to Simon. Is that we don't realize it, but we oftentimes still believe that God's love can be bought. That God's blessing is somehow merited and somehow won by those merits. Thinking that God's blessings are bought. The Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessings in, who, uh, in the heavens has been given to us that somehow those blessings are uh, at the very least acquired or appropriated in our lives because we somehow live in a way that merits it, that we somehow earn it. 
And let me just be blunt with all of us, myself included. That's why Christ is so ugly to you, oftentimes. That's why Christ's love is so unappealing. Because you think you're capable of buying it, and God keeps saying, you're not. And so what happens is you fail. And you fail. And you fail. And so you walk away discouraged, upset, pursuing other things. Why? Probably other things that you can acquire by your own merits. That's why we don't read our Bibles like we should. Why we don't pray like we should. Because our Christ is ugly, pathetic, weak, even mean. You know what this looks like in our context? Oh, I'm a Christian. I even come to church events and serve a bit, but rarely, rarely read my Bible, let alone study it. And then when someone comes along and challenges my kingdom, I get bitter. This is someone who doesn't, this is someone whose Christ is ugly. This is someone who still thinks that God's love can be bought. That's what's happening to Simon. His kingdom was being challenged, right? Because what's happened? Because in the city, what's it talk about? How, how he's got all this power over people. He's got persuasion over people. They look to him as, this is one who is great because of God. And what's happening is Philip comes in, and Philip's giving a different message of a, a power that comes upon you that's free, that you can't buy. Notice that they, they prayed and the Spirit came upon them, but the Spirit didn't come upon Simon. And I think that speaks again, that at least implies the insincerity of Simon's faith. And so what Simon saw happen is that his little kingdom that he had built with his hands was being ripped away before his eyes. And so what he want? He didn't want the power of God because he needed it for salvation. He wanted the power of God so that he could continue building his kingdom. And so as that was being ripped away from him, what happens? He gets bitter. He's trapped in his bitterness. You see, he wanted power to serve himself. And like many of us, wanting God and others to serve us, and when they don't, we get bitter. But listen, Jesus has died for you. He died for me. He took your place. And that's why Peter says, you cannot obtain the gift of God. You can't do something to buy a gift. Otherwise, it's not a gift. It's an exchange of goods. It's a gift. Not one that we have to, to earn. Someone said this, we don't get our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption and give it to God and say, now save me. Jesus is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. He is everything we ought to be. And we have nothing to do except to accept it. Listen, religiosity, all of us struggle with this, always starts with do this or do that. I know that many of us in this room live this way because it's how we make others live around us. For you to have my blessing, you must do this or you must do that. For you to have my approval, you must do this or you must do that. For you to be in relationship with me, you must do this or you must do that. Listen, your righteousness cannot save you. We, we know this, but we grasp a hold of it so much, so often. Again, we cannot earn a gift. It's a gift. It's free. It's grace. That's why. It's part of what makes this exchange so lovely. And once you understand that it's a gift, that it's yours freely, you will become a man or a woman on mission. Listen, Samaria didn't have joy until the Christians were pushed out of their comfort zone. Notice this too, that the joy in the city wasn't just among the believers. 
You notice that? The joy was in the city. Like the joy was with people. The joy was impacting. What was happening was impacting the people who weren't even a part of the body of Christ. Why? Because Christians are a blessing to the world. But Samaria didn't have joy until Christians were pushed out of their comfort zone, until they were scattered, until all their resources were on the table for God's kingdom, till their time, their money, their feelings, their houses, their relational, um, their relational um, abilities, until these were all on the table at God's disposal. That's when mission, that's when the gospel went to Samaria. It's just like our Savior. Redemption was made possible as God puts His resources on the table. As His Son Jesus is nailed to the cross, giving all He had to bear the burden of our sin. Listen, when we know this, the gospel will change you. And the more our church believes this, together, the more we'll move on mission. You see, the mission is, again, it's, it's moved by lay people. It utilizes the benefits and the natural benefits that God has built around us. It's holistic with word, deed, community, racially unifying, and it is driven by the gospel. And so the more we understand that the gospel is good news, it is a gift, not something that can be bought. So stop trying to pay for it. Then we will move forward on mission as a people. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for thinking that we can somehow earn your free gift. Somehow we can say the right things or we can read our Bibles enough or come to church enough or that we can somehow position ourselves in such a way that, that uh, we could earn these things. And certainly, Father, we could, through spiritual disciplines, we avail ourselves more and more and we enjoy more and more of the blessings that are yours to give and ours to have. And it's through, these, through hard work sometimes that, that we enjoy these blessings more and more. But, but that doesn't, it's not hard work that makes us worthy of these things. Only by the hard work of your son Jesus are we able to be worthy of these blessings. So Father, please give us eyes and hearts to see, to believe this, Father, that we would become people so enthralled with the beautiful reality that the gospel is a gift to be had and is a gift to be shared. As we do this, might we become people that move out on mission. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me?